Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. I'm your host, Matt Johnson, and I'm joined today by Ethan Keitel and Blaine Roberts, both professors at California State University, Fresno, to talk about their new book, Denmark Vesey's Garden, Slavery and Memory in the Cradle, uh, and Memory in the Cradle of the Confederacy. Blaine and Ethan, welcome to the program. Thanks for having us. Thank you. Well, my first question is, is this one of those books that's been in the works for a long time, or has this been kind of sparked by the recent controversies over Confederate memorials? This is a book that has been in the works for a long time. Um, the beginnings of it actually date back to around 2005. That was the year when uh, Ethan and I moved to Charleston from Chapel Hill, North Carolina, where we had just received our PhDs. We were moving to Charleston to take new jobs. I was taking a, a, a job at the Citadel, and Ethan was going to work at the Avery Research Center at the College of Charleston. And so the genesis of the book actually uh, was with an apartment hunt in the city, which is kind of an unusual (laughs) place to begin. But that is, in fact, what happened. Um, One day in June 2005, we drove down from Chapel Hill to Charleston to look for an apartment. And we had a really long list of places to visit that day. The first place on our list ended up being the basement apartment of an antebellum home in historic Charleston. We didn't know that before we got there. Um, So we rang the doorbell and the owner of the home welcomed us inside this basement apartment. And we were wandering through, taking a look at it and just kind of making small talk about the house, you know, when it had been constructed and who the original owners had been. And at one point, one of us said, something along the lines of, well, you know, how would this space have been used when the house was originally constructed? And the owner said, this would have been the workspace of the servants. And then one of us kind of instinctively responded, oh, you mean of the slaves? And she countered, no, they weren't slaves. There's no evidence in the historical record that they weren't paid. (laughs) Which was kind of an odd way to put it. And um, this moment ended up being a kind of jumping off point for us because, of course, what was happening is that she was completely erasing the history of enslaved labor from that particular home. And so that got us interested in how other white Charlestonians did the same thing. So lots of other experiences like that in Charleston, but that was the first one. Yeah. Historians make life so inconvenient sometimes. I mean, <laughs> that's, that's right. right. That's right. She didn't like us very much. <laughs> so, so your experience in Charleston obviously kind of drove this book. You know, what makes Charleston such a great place to kind of focus a book on the history of memory and slavery? Uh, that's a fantastic question. There, there are probably two kind of main elements that make it, um, I, I think, an ideal study for the memory of slavery. One uh, is it, uh, as we call it in the book, it was the capital of American slavery. It was a place where more than half of the 
uh, enslaved Africans brought across from Africa on the transatlantic slave trade first landed um, in what would become the United States. It's about 100,000 people. It was a center of the domestic slave trade uh, that brought tens of thousands of people just from Charleston to the Southwest, to the slave markets in New Orleans. Uh, it was a African-American and enslaved majority city for most of its early history. Uh, and it was a place where the ideological and political defense of slavery really was born and was loudest starting in the middle of the 19th century, although extending back to the revolutionary period. And then, of course, culminating in the secession movement of the late 1850s and early 1860s and culminating in the Civil War and defense of slavery that broke out in Charleston. Um, so yeah, it, it was the capital of American slavery. And then since uh, the end of the Civil War, really starting in the early 20th century, Charleston fashioned itself into a mecca of historical tourism, um, a place that celebrated its past, its beautiful antiquated buildings, its uh, plantations surrounding the city, its old forts. Um, historical tourism became the, the most important industry in Charleston in the 20th century. Today, it's a city of maybe 100,000 people live in the peninsula of Charleston. More than 5 million people visit the city every year, and historical tourism is one of the main reasons they go and visit that. And so it's, it's these two kind of visions, um, this place um, that was central to slavery, and creating and promoting slavery, and then a place today that uh, fancies his historical memory and memory remembering the past as its central industry. The fact that these two things didn't often uh, overlap that that really um, led us while we lived there to start to think about writing a book about the memory of slavery. Because in many ways, up until the very recent past, the historical tourism industry has ignored this large slice of its past. It's ignored its enslaved past. Um, and as as historians, as American historians, we couldn't help but see that, not just in the, the comments of a, a would-be landlord, but everywhere in the tourism mm -hmm. industry. Mm -hmm. you, you you start this book right off the bat with, with Dylan Roof. Why, why do you start with his story? Hmm. Well, um, I think that Dylan Roof uh, and the kind of the ideas that motivated his heinous actions in Charleston in June of 2015... Um, his ideology is, is really kind of rooted in this whitewashed memory of slavery. That's what we end up calling this tradition of remembering and not remembering, ignoring, forgetting. We call it the whitewashed tradition. And what we mean by that is there have been uh, whites in particular in Charleston since the end of the Civil War who have made a couple of arguments. Number one, that uh, slavery did not really matter all that much to the mm -hmm. city, to the history of the city, to the wealth of white Charlestonians, to the wealth of white Americans in general, that uh, to the extent that slavery did exist, it was benign, even benevolent, and that it had a civilizing effect on African mm -hmm. slaves. Um, and then another argument that they uh, make is that slavery did not mm -hmm. cause the Civil War that white Southerners did not secede from the Union in order to create a new nation um, to maintain slavery. So we call this the whitewash tradition. So Dylan Roof really kind of embodies 
the uh, kind of horrible contemporary uses of this whitewashed tradition. He uh, really can't abide the fact that slavery was so important, that slavery was so brutal and so awful, and that Africans suffered so much. And he argued quite the opposite. He argued quite the opposite. That's exactly right. He said slavery wasn't all that bad. It was good for slaves. And so he's a very good example of how these whitewashed ideas can be used for very reactionary purposes. Sometimes it's just conservative um, political positions and policies. In his case, of course, he took them to this really kind of yeah. horrible end. But but and I think just to add to that, he because uh, not only sort of neo pro slavery ideology was so important to him, but because I think in particular what came out about him after that awful day in uh, 2015 was his affinity for mm-hmm. the Confederate flag. And Confederate symbols. I think what that did is it started to make um, the country as a whole start to be a little bit um, uh, more self-aware of the symbols that we still have standing and have flying in the country to look around and say, wow, there's still a Confederate flag flying on the state capitol grounds in Columbia, South Carolina, where Dylan Roof is from. Uh, what, what does that mean Um in America today? What does it mean that there are hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of Confederate monuments everywhere across this country, and very few, if any, in most cities, uh, very, very few in the country as a whole, monuments reflecting on, say, um, the experience of enslaved people. And, and so I think what the roof incident did is, in some ways, nationalize a conversation mm-hmm. that historians have been having for a while, that and Americans that had been having for a long while uh, that that had been going on in cer- you know, certain segments of society and, so, and sort of put it in front of a lot of people, uh, put it in front of the entire country. <clears throat> and so in that way, the book that we had been working on already for quite a long time, tracing this conversation back to the immediate end of the Civil War, it, it, it expanded that um, dramatically. Um, and in that way, forced us to kind of reshape in, in the introduction and conclusion of our book. Mm-hmm. Yeah, when you when you you know after you get into to roof story, you 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 jump back to the uh, you know end of the Civil War. And I was wondering, you know, was there any moment right after the end of the Civil War when whites didn't really have full control over the memory of slavery? Did African Americans ever have an upper hand at any point in the in the immediate aftermath of the Civil War? Uh, absolutely. And I think that your question gets to another important point that we try to make in the book. Um, kind of standing in op- opposition to this whitewashed memory of slavery is what we call the unvarnished memory. Mm. And what we mean by the unvarnished memory of slavery is that this is a tradition of remembering the institution for what it really was mm. as a brutally inhumane institution that was rooted in violence and forced labor Uh, That was an institution that broke up families uh, through sales at the auction block and that remembers slavery as, in fact, the cause of the Civil War. And so this is something that we trace throughout the book. To get back to your question, the unvarnished memory of slavery was actually the dominant memory of slavery uh, right after the Civil War ended. In fact, 
as it was ending. The unvarnished memory of slavery was really pushed into the public sphere by newly freed slaves. Mm -hmm. Yeah, one of the things that we knew a little bit about this, because we're not the first historians to to sort of um, wade into these waters, but but, but the extent to which um, this existed, this unvarnished memory predominating in a place like Charleston really surprised us. Uh, and And it did start as the Civil War was was coming to a close in 1865, in the spring of 1865, Charleston had been occupied by Union troops in February. And immediately thereafter, the former slaves in the city started putting on, in conjunction with Union Army forces, uh, but 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 often um, you know they were the the first the prime movers in this, putting on a remarkable number of uh, emancipation celebrations mm-hmm. of. Uh, parades and get-togethers and speeches that were designed to mark the end of slavery, but also to sort of underscore the meaning of the war and the realities of slavery. And perhaps the largest um, uh, one took place in March, on March 21st, 1865. We call it the Slavery is Dead Parade. And it was this huge, enormous parade. Thousands and thousands and thousands of people participated in it wound its way all through the city. And, and it featured uh, a number of kind of striking um, you know, displays. One was uh, a slave, a mock slave auction mm-hmm. uh, in which an ex-slave man pretended to be a slave auctioneer, auction, uh, an auctioneer, and he was on a wagon, a mule-drawn wagon, and he was pretending to auction off for people who had themselves once been enslaved and once been sold off. Um, and, you know, he would say, who's the highest bidder shouting to the crowd that's watching them? And and the, the reporters who, who reported on this uh, would, talked about the ways in which the crowd was amused by this. But also some uh, people were overwhelmed by this. Some uh, formerly enslaved mothers started breaking down in tears and crying. And, and what that was really doing is not just it was a celebration. Um, it reflected, you know, the fact that, that, that they wanted to mark the end and that this, this was a, a moment of jubilee, but it also underscored this unvarnished memory that they, they could not and would not allow people to forget that slavery was about tearing apart families, mm-hmm. destroying families, and that, and that needed to be remembered. That's right. And another part of that parade um, was a coffin that was pulled down the street. And it on the coffin was written, slavery mm. is dead. Right. Which is a very powerful image to think about. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, here in the capital of American slavery, the cradle of the Confederacy, where the Civil War began, having a funeral for slavery. Mm-hmm. Uh, it would have been a very, I think, poignant moment. Yeah, that is that is powerful. What, what is? I'm wondering. You know, Blaine explained a bit about you know what the, the components of whitewashing. I'm wondering, you know, what does this actually look like in Charleston? Does it start coming up in in monuments or commemorations? What does this early sort of whitewashing actually look like? Yeah. So this unvarnished memory uh, that we've just talked about really predominates through Reconstruction uh, and even into the early post Reconstruction period. You know, that's an era when There are union troops there. Um, We have African-Americans. Politically, they have power in the city and in the state. And so they're able to preserve that unvarnished memory for a number of years. It starts to be challenged by white Charlestonians and white South Carolinians in general, starting in about the 1880s. Well, it's challenged during Reconstruction, but then 
but, they, but, it, but it's a counter memory. That's what's striking. Yeah. It's a counter mm-hmm. memory. The, the lost cause memory uh, is, is a counter memory during reconstruction. That's right. So one of the earliest things that happens is that some of these public celebrations that we've just talked about um, get pushed out of public spaces. So uh, another kind of celebration that was very uh, important to newly freed slaves were 4th of July celebrations, Mm -hmm. obviously held on the 4th, and Emancipation Day celebrations held on January the 1st to celebrate the Emancipation Proclamation. And these would always involve parades and kind of, you know, public gatherings in parks, like at White Point Garden, which is at the base of the peninsula. And so what starts to happen as we get into the 1880s and 1890s, as white Charlestonians are starting to kind of push against this memory, is that they literally start to push African-Americans out of these public mm. spaces and to say, you can no longer have these celebrations there. They pass measures prohibiting the um, large public gatherings in these yeah. spaces. And effectively, they push them off the peninsula and, and then effectively erase the memory of these celebrations that had gone on in the late 1860s through the 1870s, well into the 1880s and 1890s. By the, the middle of the 20th century, there's not a, a, a robust, at least, memory, even in the Black community, of what these Fourth of July celebrations, for instance, um, had once been called. Emancipation Day holds on and stays a tradition in Charleston, uh, although where it would be held uh, changes, but but um, th- th- it's, it's largely, largely driven away. Um, and pushed into to more private spaces. It's, you know, this is the era of Jim Crow. And one of the, the things that, that stands out when you look at Charleston um, in terms of the memory of slavery is you see as Charleston in the South is segregated, you see the segregation of memory, the, the public memory, the memory that's written everywhere as Charleston fashions itself into America's most historic city is a largely white memory, a memory that doesn't have much place uh, for slavery. And if it does, it's this whitewashed vision of it. And African-American memories, the unvarnished memory of slavery uh, is is retreats. It, you know, it has to retreat and, and it's, it remains. Um, uh, it's nurtured in places like churches, black churches, uh, segregated schools, African-American schools and in black families. And that it's really passed down um, there. And, and if I can, real quickly, at the same time as this is going on, this is when you start to see uh, proponents of the whitewash memory of slavery start to erect monuments, monuments to Confederate leaders, and most uh, conspicuously in Charleston, um, two monuments uh, to the great defender of slavery in South Carolina, John C. Mm-hmm. Calhoun. And maybe one of the most interesting elements of the Calhoun monuments, there's still the second one um, that was uh, put up in 1896, replaced the first one that had been put up about a decade earlier, still towers today, 100 feet tall in the center of, of, of Charleston, is that although Calhoun, there's, there's nothing he's known more for than his um, vigorous defense of slavery, his monument does not say anything about slavery on it. And to me, that's a, that to us, that's the perfect embodiment of this whitewashed memory of slavery. 
Yeah, the, 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 uh, after you, you talk about the Calhoun Monument, you get into a fascinating story about uh, Charleston becoming a, a tourism city and, and just how inconvenient it is for when northern touristies, tourists be, begin to come down to Charleston and really want to see the relics of slavery, right? And, and you know, how do, how do people in Charleston respond to that demand to see the relics of slavery? <laughs> they don't really like it all that much. <laughs> um, yeah, this was, I think, another kind of interesting, maybe even surprising aspect of this story was finding these traces of these northern visitors coming down. Charleston was a very early destination for northern tourists. So to have them coming to the city and being very forthright in their interest in slavery and wanting to see sites where slaves had been sold, where they lived. And so kind of looking at how the locals responded to this was very instructive. They essentially took this interest and tried to reframe it in a way that was acceptable, palatable to local sensibilities. So one uh, good example would be uh, there is still today a building, it's called the Old Slave Mart Museum, that was a very important slave uh, auction complex in the antebellum period. And people knew this, locals knew it, northerners got wind of it, and so they came asking about it and they wanted to see it. But as white Charlestonians get wind of this, they start publishing guidebooks. And in these guidebooks, they try to deflect attention away from the fact that it used to be a slave trading complex. And so some of the early guidebooks say things like the so-called old slave mart or the mythical old slave mart. And if you read the text, it says many northern tourists come here asking for, you know, the antebellum slave market. In fact, there was no such thing. So it's a really interesting kind of dynamic and back and forth between locals and these outsiders who are coming in with some knowledge mm -hmm. um, and kind of having it reframed by yeah, locals. Getting back to the unvarnished memory of, of African-Americans, and especially when you get into the Jim Crow period, I imagine it was incredibly difficult to uncover their voices. And what's so impressive about this book is that black voices never go away uh, in this book. They're always there, and it's really wonderful. And I was wondering if you could just talk about just the difficulty of finding those voices and incorporating them into the, this book. Yeah, yeah. That, that was hard. Um, you know, it's, it, in some ways, that was the, as you, your question suggests, that was a, probably the most challenging thing or the, the barrier we most feared at the outset yes. is how to recover those voices, how this to not make it just a story of white remembering and white forgetting, um, but also a story of black remembering. Uh, and and that, that was a challenge. You know, part of it was that we were able to build, this is a 150 year study, we were build, able to build on the work of other scholars, people who hadn't been approaching the, the history of Charleston with uh, the um, from the vantage point of the memory of slavery, a, a historian Lee Drago who wrote a great book on the Avery Normal Institute, um, a pioneering black school in Charleston. He had done all these great in the seventies, really early eighties, I think, all these great interviews with with graduates of Avery, and fortunately. He had deposited all of his interviews, so we were able to use his book, but even more, use his original interviews. He had deposited them um, at the Avery Research Center, and we were able to make use of those. And so to, to, sort, to get an inside view of what was being taught and talked about in this pioneering Black space, 
that that you know really gave us a, a sense of what was going on when white memory was was not predominating and when white uh, voices were not allowing African-Americans to speak in public about these sorts of things. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So quite a few oral history interviews, you know, this is where we are all a great debt to the historians who do this kind of work and the archivists who Mm -hmm. (laughs) preserve them. Um, You know, there's also just one other example, a really great memoir that we rely on quite a bit. Mamie Garvin Fields, who was a black Charlestonian born in the 1880s, her two granddaughters are academics and they realize the value of her, her memories and her experiences. And so Karen Fields, one of her granddaughters, sat down with her at some point and helped her, you know, write this memoir. And that is an absolutely invaluable resource for anybody who's trying to learn really anything about segregated Charleston, you know, black experiences during Jim Crow. Um, one other thing, it, it is worth noting that despite the fact that black memories of slavery are really kind of pushed out of the public sphere and this whitewashed memory uh, becomes kind of the ascendant memory, uh, local newspapers did not altogether ignore the black community. And so it was possible for us to find brief mentions, for example, of an Emancipation Day celebration happening in a local church. You know, it wouldn't be a long story. It would be just a paragraph or two. But those kinds of articles did exist. And it's a very small trace. But, you know, we were able to find enough of those to kind of piece together this, you know, that kind that part of the story. And the same goes reading newspapers. Uh, the same goes for us tracking what was a, a pretty clear campaign of vandalism against, say, the Calhoun monuments that most of our uh, Mamie Garvin Fields writes about this. Mm-hmm. So she, in fact, really sort of provides a lot of the um, the logic behind it and the arguments that, that were there in the black community uh, about it. But to catalog the incidents, the newspapers um, are, are a great resource. Now, they, they rarely, um, if ever, delved into the reasons why um, there were lo- there was a lot of uh, vandalism and mutilation of these monuments, why the black community often made fun of these monuments, but they documented them extensively. And so we, by, by combining sources like Fields's memoir with newspaper accounts, which are often pretty nasty and derogatory mm-hmm. and frankly racist, uh, but reading against the grain, pulling out meaning from those and combining them with other sources, we were able to kind of reconstruct that story. And we also depended a little bit on, speaking of, of oral history, one of the, the more fascinating uh, discoveries we made was the diaries uh, and uh, oral histories effectively recorded by Frederick Bancroft, an early pioneering historian of the slave trade, Columbia University PhD, who who went to Charleston six, seven times in the late 18th and early or late 19th, early 20th centuries, and interviewed every anyone and everyone who would talk to him including former slaves, and jotted them down in this terrible handwriting that we tried to <laughs> um, decipher. Uh, but, but you know, they, and they're sitting there in, in um, the, the Rare Books Library in Columbia uh, University in New York City, and, and they provided a wealth of insight just into um, the sort of larger context and, and actually to a lot of the, the sort of forgetting and whitewashing, because he would talk about how white Charlestonians got very upset when he would bring up the issue of the slave trade. 
Um, but he also would record, you know, he walked around, he went to the old slave mart that Blaine was talking about. And, and just around the corner from that, he found, you know, former slaves who were, who were sitting in a lot and he interviewed them and, and, and got a very different view and take on slave, slavery and the slave trade from them. And so we pieced together a lot of these different kind mm-hmm. of random sources. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, covering 150 years in this book too also makes it very powerful because the next kind of turning point of this rights movement, right? I mean, how, how does the civil rights movement really make an impact in the memory in Charleston? Well, it's absolutely pivotal, as you suggest. This unvarnished memory, by and large, had been pushed out of the public sphere and into these kind of other private locations that we talked about, schools, churches, families. So the civil rights movement is the first time since the 1870s and 80s when this unvarnished memory is pushed back out into the open. And it's done very explicitly, very purposefully by local African-Americans. And they're really, they have kind of two goals here. The first is just to set the historical record straight. <laughs> Locals are saying this whitewashed memory of slavery is incorrect, it's inaccurate. It does not reflect the historical record. So they they want to, for example, start teaching about slavery and African-American history in schools, um, particularly newly desegregated schools where African-American... But even before that, even in segregated schools, yeah. they wanted to make a plate and they struggled to do that to in do the 50s. That. They did struggle to do that. So part of it is just we want to set the record straight. But the other motivation was that civil rights activists understood that memory is a source of power. And they saw that these unvarnished memories of slavery could be used in their contemporary struggle against Jim Crow. Probably the best example of that would be the use of slave spirituals among civil rights activists. Right. Like the, the, you know, the most famous spiritual you could think of in the civil rights context is we shall overcome. Right, becomes this effectively the national anthem of the civil rights movement, and it's and it's a song that is born out of an old slave spiritual that dates, um, you know, back to the 19th century, if not before. That was uh, embraced and reshaped and deployed um, as something to to galvanize striking tobacco workers in the World War II era, 1944-45. They, they would sing this song, they recrafted lyrics, um, eventually shared those with union activists and, and early civil rights activists. Um, the song spread and, and by the 60s, it becomes you know, the national anthem of the civil rights movement. And so in that way, they were really tapping into what had been protest songs, what in a, in a curious way in the early 20th century uh, among some elite Charlestonians were made into almost lost cause songs, um, they, they, they returned them to their original purpose. Yeah, yeah, what these civil rights activists, of course, find is that this, this slave spirituals tradition was still thriving in the area, particularly on the sea islands. And these are the uh, islands around the Charleston Peninsula with large African-American populations. And they, they had been singing these you know, former slave spirituals all through the 20th century. And these were songs of resistance. They were songs of resistance during slavery. And so during the civil rights movement, they start more people start to sing them in this new civil rights context. You actually see newspaper stories about civil rights activists having learned them from African-Americans in the surrounding sea islands, going out to King Street 
and that's the main kind of commercial thoroughfare in downtown Charleston, participating in sit-ins and walking down the street in protests and singing songs that were based on slave spirituals from the Sea Islands. I have a couple of contemporary questions since you, you get this book all the way up to the present. You know, who do you think is, 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 what type of memory is winning right now in Charleston? Is the unvarnished memories taking control or is, or is it really still dominated by whitewashed memory? Oh, man. <laughs> that is a hard <laughs> question to answer. It depends on the, it depends on the hour. You know? It depends on the hour. I really feel like, uh, you know, so, well, one way to uh, maybe if I go on close to an hour, Blaine will correct me and take us in a different direction. But um, one way to, to think about it is, and we've thought a lot and talked personally and also written a lot about this uh, question as we finish this book up, as this whole national conversation was born in 2015 with the Emanuel shooting, Emanuel massacre. You know, one of the things that struck us, that has struck us in looking at what's going on today is a lot has actually changed, at least in terms of the public presentation of slavery in the historical tourism industry, for instance, in Charleston over the last decade. We started this book about a decade ago, sadly. And in, in if, you, if you walked around Charleston, say in 2003 or 2004, you would see countless Confederate monuments. You'd see countless historical plaques. You would hear, you would, you would see and overhear carriage tour guides and van tour guides and walking tour guides talking about history everywhere. You'd see these beautiful old historic buildings. And unless you really knew the history of the city before that, which is not, case, not the case for most tourists, you wouldn't hear anything or see anything about slavery, right? And it was, it was a city that was, as some of my students um, who've read our book or recently put it, it was, it was kind of like historic Disneyland. And, you know, it was a Disneyland that, that just ignored this part of its past, the most the central part of its past. And that was in some ways the motivation for us to start to at least dig into um, uh, this topic and, and eventually write this book. That is not the case today. Um, if you go to historic plantations today, almost all of them have slavery tours or slave, slavery to freedom tours, tours that, that focus on African-American history. If you wander the streets, as we've done the last few times we visited, and you, you happen by uh, tour guides, walking tour guides, sharing the city with people, it, it's not a, a rare occasion to hear them talking about slavery and they're talking about like unpleasant elements of slavery, the sort of thing that you'd rarely hear about a decade ago. Today, there are more than a dozen monuments that treat the African-American past of the city, that treat the history of slavery, monuments about where the slave trade took place, for instance. So it's changed, um, and 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 we do think that needs to be underscored and acknowledged. And so that that side of us, I think, yeah. makes us feel glass half half full. Yeah. Well, the glass half empty part would come anytime I read the comment section on a story in the local newspaper, or um, you know, go on particular Facebook pages. There are some Facebook pages that are focused on the history of Charleston. And, you know, it's in those moments that you see people just repackaging these old arguments about slavery not mattering, and it was all okay, and the Civil War wasn't about slavery. Um, a, a good example of, of how there's still some real resistance to change would be what's happening with the um, Calhoun Monument in Charleston. So this Calhoun Monument 
that, you know, we've talked about already sits in the center of the city. And after the Emanuel massacre, there were, of course, calls to bring it down. You know, that's been one of the responses nationally uh, to these white supremacist monuments that are in our landscape. So uh, quite a few locals said we need to tear it down. Well, there's a state law in South Carolina that prevents the removal of monuments like this without uh, legislative approval. And so what is happening is that locals are trying to contextualize it. And the contextualization angle is an approach that says, okay, well, we're going to leave this up, but we're going to write new text to place around it that explains why this particular monument is so problematic. You know, here's why Calhoun is so problematic. Yeah. And then in this particular case, it would say Calhoun uh, was one of the biggest pro-slavery politicians in the antebellum period, things like that. So that is essentially what has happened because of this state law. So the state law in and of itself, I think, is an example of how there's a very strong uh, kind of current of resistance to change. And then the way that the contextualization um, kind of effort is going is not terribly encouraging because it's essentially stalled. It's been tabled because the, the folks uh, in Charleston can't come to an agreement over the language. And so my concern is that the eventual language might be watered down mm -hmm. and might not do what it should do, which is to very clearly state the full range of John C. Calhoun's antebellum beliefs yeah. and career. And not just the full range, the, the, the most important the exactly. thing that he dedicated his political career right. to, which is not anywhere on the monument which talks about truth and the constitution yeah. and history and his family. Slavery is nowhere to be, <laughs> nowhere found. To be found. And maybe as a, an add on to that, another um, sort of uh, monument that, that exposes this, I don't know, glass half full, glass half empty um, place that Charleston is in terms of slavery is the, the recently erected monument to Denmark Vesey, which, it, which, those who initially pushed for it starting in the late 1990s, they wanted it to be right square in the middle of the city in Marion Square, right by the John C. Calhoun uh, museum uh, uh, monument. And they they didn't get that. And so I, I, we haven't really talked about who uh, VZ was um, in, you know, he doesn't title our book. So let me just say a couple words. Denmark VZ was a, a former slave, but born a slave, uh, gained his freedom um, but was not able to gain the freedom or liberate his his wife and his children. Um, uh, lived under the oppressive uh, the the oppressive white supremacist regime in Charleston in the early 1800s, uh, and so he and uh, a number of others plotted a, a massive slave rebellion um, that was to take place on Bastille Day, July 14th, 1822. Didn't come off. Authorities got wind of it swiftly, grabbed VZ, dozens of others threw them in jail, tortured them, executed many of them. Um, and Vizi, in many ways, is, is, is kind of this figure who, who, who is symbolic of slavery um, uh, for Charlestonians, white and black. For, for white Charlestonians, he is the, the, the devil figure. He is someone who, who scares them, who would have, to them, slaughtered all their ancestors, that he haunts their nightmares for a lot of African-Americans and others in Charleston. Um, who, who understand that the unvarnished realities of slavery, VZ was a freedom fighter, no different, um, a would-be freedom fighter at least, no different than a George Washington um, who wanted to liberate uh, his people. And with that in mind, 
a number of African-American activists in the 1990s decided that they wanted to and raise money uh, to erect a monument to Denmark Vesey. Um, the city supported this. Uh, they wanted to put it in Marion Square, a park in the center of the city where the Calhoun Monument uh, stands today. Unfortunately for them, the, the two the two militia, 19th century militia groups that actually own the park and lease it for a nominal fee to the city wouldn't allow them to put the VC monument there. So ultimately, it was erected just a few years ago in another park in the city, Hampton Park. Uh, it's a beautiful monument um, in, in a beautiful little grove, uh, but it's far from the center of the city. If you if you are Charles, if you're a visitor to Charleston, you will see the Calhoun monument. You cannot miss it. It's huge and it's in the center of the city. It is hard even for locals to find the VZ monument. In fact, we just, didn't we just talk to some folks in the city when we were last there and they said, oh, yeah, we had to put up extra signage to help locals find it. Um, you know, it's tucked away. And, and in that way, it's it's location, but it's um, the fact that it's up reflects this changing Charleston, but resistant yeah. to change Charleston. Mm-hmm. Well, that leads me into my very last question, which is, you know, you know, if, if no laws existed in South Carolina, like the ones that you described, what what would you like to see uh, done with all of these whitewashing monuments in, a, in an ideal world? <laughs> well, this is... We could play God for a moment. Yeah, that's right. That's right. Yeah. Uh, it's an interesting question, I think, particularly for us, because we thought, uh, obviously, a lot about it, but also because I think that um, our uh, views and opinions have been constantly evolving. Um so right after the massacre, we actually published a piece in the Atlantic in which we made the case that Confederate monuments, let's just call them white supremacist monuments, because uh, John C. Calhoun, of course, was not a Confederate. So that these white supremacist monuments should actually remain standing, but be contextualized. They should have signage added that explained the problematic history of the particular person uh, who was being commemorated. So if we're talking about a Confederate general, it would say this person, you know, fought uh, to found a nation based on the maintenance of slavery. So to leave them standing and put those kinds of plaques in. And, and our argument was that in this way, we could remember the wrongs, the kind of commemorative wrongs that communities like Charleston had committed. Right. Uh, that they're not monuments of the Confederacy or the Civil War. They're monuments of the Jim Crow South that erected them while they were segregating their communities and celebrating white supremacy. Yeah. And so our argument was let's leave them there, but contextualize them so that we can kind of have a full reckoning with what these communities did with what they were trying to say with these white supremacist monuments. And I think one of the ways that we put it was if we remove them, we're sanitizing the historical, the the memory landscape, the commemorative landscape by essentially saying this didn't happen. Right. We didn't uh, communities across the country didn't spend dozens of years erecting monuments to people who wanted to save slavery. Yeah. So our argument, to be clear, was not that we wanted to leave them up because we thought they were good monuments or good history. Or good history. <laughs> um, so but then sort of over the intervening two years, I, we started to see that. um I don't know. We started to kind of lose enthusiasm for that position. One of the reasons, at least for me, is that when I would explain it, it's very easy to misinterpret. 
Uh, we were said and several times taken, you know, our words were, were misinterpreted and yes. misrepresented to say, hey, they don't want to remove them. They, they think these are important. They, this is erasing history. Yeah. So that's actually it is that a lot of times people would say, yeah, you're right. We can't erase history. And they were using that phrase in a way that we did not at all intend it. No. These are historical artifacts of Jim Crow. They have nothing to do with the history of the of, of this, the actual history of the Civil War. Yeah. So it was we found that it was very uh, easy to be um, kind of misunderstood. And then I think also it was becoming clear over time that that they were starting to become and this became incredibly clear last August because of Charlottesville totems of a new white supremacist movement. And, you know, in Charlottesville last August, essentially there was this huge white supremacist KKK neo-Nazi rally, and they were there to protest the removal of the Robert E. Lee statue in Charlottesville. And, and at that point, it was difficult to say that these were historical artifacts because those folks who were there were rallying around them at that moment to find fuel for their contemporary campaign of hate. That combined with, you know, the just overwhelming sense that expressed by so many in the African-American community from the time they were erected to today, that these are offensive, um, whether or not look, white supremacists today are rallying to them. Mm -hmm. These are, uh, uh, and regardless of what historians of historical memory like us might want them to use them as, as these um, uh, objects of learning is these, is these examples, these little moments for us to teach about Jim Crow era that, that, that having these in their face day after day walking by the Calhoun Monument is so deeply troubling that ultimately I think that tipped the balance in, in for both of us towards some sort of uh, removal, deliberative removal process if local communities want to do that and then keeping them as historical artifacts and interpreting them in museums or elsewhere. I'll add one last thing. One thing I've really kind of, um, especially with the Calhoun Monument in particular, that I've been drawn to along these lines, and that sort of splits the difference between removal and the sort of historical contextualization that Blaine and I have argued for or did argue for in 2015, um, is, is a proposal that would say, uh, take down the actual statue of John C. Calhoun in Marion Square and leave up the uh, 80 or 90 foot column. Right. And and uh, the and effectively, it's the an empty pedestal um, uh, solution, because to what that would do, to my mind, is it would take it would say we do not believe in this person anymore. The ideas he stood for and a culture that would venerate him and he's removed. But we leave this empty pedestal up as a reminder that we once venerated someone who said slavery was a positive good. And to me, at least. That has the benefit of teaching an important lesson about historical memory, while at the same time getting rid of this totem of white supremacy and this offensive um, symbol to so many Americans. Yeah, empty pedestals are very striking, I think, to spectators, you know. So I, I think that it, it's a I, I like it. We've talked a lot about it uh, in New Orleans right now. You know, uh, Mayor Mitch Landrieu just removed, uh, along with grassroots activists in the city council, their four white supremacist monuments last spring. And I think at the moment that the Robert E. Lee pedestal is uh, still empty. And I would imagine that it's a pretty uh, interesting sight to behold. Well, thank you for sharing your thoughts on that. And, and Ethan Keidel and Blaine Roberts, thank you so much for joining me. And thank you for writing such a powerful and important book. 
Thank you. Thank you so much. The book is Denmark VC's Garden. Uh, thank you for joining us.